Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King and happy Easter. It is great to see you this morning. If you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. We are very glad that you're here. My name is Penny and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. And uh, again, if you're a guest, if you're a visitor, uh, if this is your first Sunday here, uh, or if it's your fifth Sunday, <laughs> we are thankful that you're with us and glad that you would be with us this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. See, that is what we do this morning. We are celebrating this historic event in the life of the world. It's a historic event, not just for the life of the Christian, but it is the central event in the life of the world because it is the event in which the entire Christian faith rests. That's not just me saying that. That's not just the pastor pontificating. That is uh, the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul said that if Christ is not resurrected, if the tomb is still full, if his body is still in the grave, then Christians are to be the most pitied of all people. That we are still dead in our sins and we are without hope. But thanks be to God that we are not without hope, but we have great hope because Christ, in fact, is risen. And so it is right for us to take time every year. It is right for us to take time really every week, but, but once a year to focus our attention on this central event in our faith. And so we do so this morning by looking at John chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, please feel free to turn to John 20. The passage is also printed in your order of service, and there are Bibles under the chairs in front of you if you would like one. We're continuing to look at the resurrection this morning by continuing in our study of the life of Peter. You see, Peter, this disciple, is a central character in this passage, in this resurrection account. Peter, this disciple who denied Christ, who knows that Jesus has died, who for the last few days from the crucifixion until that first Easter morning has been in darkness and a sadness that is overwhelming. But what he is going to find is the same thing that we find, hope. And so let's go ahead and read John chapter 20. We'll begin in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, 
why are you weeping? He said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, he turned round and saw Jesus standing, but he did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we do thank you that you have preserved this portion of your word and that we can come to it this morning. We ask that as we examine it, as we look into it, as we ponder it, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts, that you would enlighten our minds, so that we would see the beauty and richness of our Lord Jesus. Father, help us, we pray. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, about a week ago, uh, I was talking with one of my friends, and he was telling me that he was uh, starting to read the Lord of the Rings trilogy for the second time. And, uh, and really, the Lord of the Rings is really only good like the third and fourth and fifth time, so they just keep getting better. And so I got very excited when my friend started sharing this with me. Many of you know these stories of Frodo and Sam and, and the Fellowship of the Ring. And so when he told me he was rereading them, I, I started to remember all my favorite parts in the Lord of the Rings. Right, the first chapter on concerning hobbits, and, and at the very end, the, the scourging of the Shire, these two chapters that bookend the series. I, I love these stories. They're wonderful. Right? You know these stories, Frodo and Sam. They have to destroy the one ring of power, right? this ring that, that produces all the evil over Middle-earth. And, and if the, the evil tyrant Sauron gets it, then, then he will bring darkness over Middle-earth forever. And so they set off on their venture, and they move towards Mount Doom, and they have to destroy it. It's a wonderful story. And as I was thinking about this story, and I was thinking about all the parts that I like, I remember this one scene. Uh, Sam is actually at the center of the scene, not Frodo, not Legolas, or, or any of the other characters. It's Sam. And I remember this one scene. It's, it's right after the ring has been destroyed. So they get to Mount Doom. They cast the ring into fire. The, you know, goodness wins. So if I just, I'm sorry if I let out of the bag. But, but I'm pretty sure, like, statute of limitations, we have enough time now. But, um, but so goodness wins. It has victory over evil. And they cast the ring into Mount Doom. And the explosion that ensues sends Sam and Frodo back. And they're knocked unconscious and seemingly left for dead. And then we find Sam a little while later. He awakens in surprise. He awakens in a bed. He's no longer at the the doorway to Mount Doom, but he's in a bed, and it's quiet and light. And he awakens to surprise, and, and not only is he surprised because he's in a bed, but there's Gandalf, the white wizard, and he looks up and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. 
And then he asked this beautiful question. Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? It's a wonderful question. It's a beautiful question because it is the question that all of us have asked at one time or another. It is the question that we ask because we all know sadness. We have all experienced it. Right? We've all experienced the sadness that comes with relational difficulty, with vocational uncertainty, with emotional worry. We've all wondered, is sadness going to come untrue? We've asked it, not with those exact words, but we've asked it more like, how long? How long will this last? When will brokenness finally be healed? Will darkness endure forever? We've asked those questions. And so too did the women that Easter morning. They had been asking that question ever since Christ had been crucified. They had been asking, is sadness going to come untrue? The disciples were wondering it as well as they had abandoned their Savior and darkness had veiled the earth for those few days. But what they're going to see and experience is that everything sad is coming untrue. Because though darkness had descended upon the land and death had come, the light of resurrection had burst through the darkness and life had taken up residence in the place of death. In the abode of the dwelling, in the grave, there was now life. That's what we're going to sing about a little bit later. As we come to the table, one of the songs we'll sing says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. That's what we will sing. That resurrection has come. That it has burst in the midst of darkness. That darkness and death could not reign because Christ has risen. And his rising changes everything. It changed everything for those disciples. It changed everything for Mary. And it changes everything for us. You see, his resurrection replaces uncertainty with confidence. His resurrection takes sadness and he dispels it with comfort. His resurrection takes fear and that gives way to commission. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. That resurrection gives us confidence and comfort and commission. That it gives us confidence. Mary comes to the tomb. She comes to the tomb early that morning, and what's she expecting to see? A stone in the mouth of the tomb. She's expecting to find a body laying in the grave. And so she peers in. She gets there. The stone is rolled away, and so she runs to Peter and John. That's the other disciple. It's John, the writer of the gospel. They hear Mary's report, her recount, and now they run to the tomb. Did you notice how much running is going on? It's like back and forth, they're running, they're sprinting. And, and I love that John made sure to point out that he was a little bit faster than Peter. Right? Like for the church, for thousands of years, we will know that John was the fastest of the disciples, right? Like he can hold it over Peter for all eternity. It's beautiful. It's very, very funny to me. But they run, they run, and they get to the tomb, and they look inside, and there is no body, just as Mary had said. It is empty. There's simply linen cloths lying there. 
no longer wrapped around the body, the, but they're just laying there empty. And so John looks in and he looks around and we're told that he believed. Did you see that? He believed. Now, what did he believe? He didn't simply believe that the tomb was empty, but something much more important than that. You see that word to believe in John's gospel is used 98 times. And in almost every single instance that it's used in John's gospel, it is speaking about believing in Jesus, believing his word, believing in him. You see, John had heard Jesus's teaching about dying and rising again. He had heard Jesus say that if you destroy this temple, his body, three days later, he will rebuild it. And though he still had trouble seeing how the scriptures had pointed to it, that's what verse 9 is describing, they still had trouble understanding how the Old Testament pointed to the necessity of the resurrection. John still believed. He had confidence that Christ's body had not been stolen by robbers, but all of Christ's teaching comes flooding back into his mind, and he believed that Christ was risen. He had confidence that Christ had defeated death. And friends, we can have that confidence too. You see, that's not just confidence for those who saw an empty tomb or who clung to Jesus' feet, as we will see Mary will do, but that is confidence for us. Now, I wonder if we, we believe that, if, if we can truly have confidence in the resurrection. You know, um, just yesterday I was reading uh, in the New York Times, in the op-ed section, Nicholas Kristof was giving an op-ed, and oftentimes he has these Q&As with different Christians. In this one, he was interviewing the, the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. And so he's asking her these questions about Easter and about Christianity, and, and that makes sense, right, because we're at Easter. And, and so he asked her things about the resurrection, like, like, do you really believe that Jesus bodily rose from the grave? Like, he knows his Bible. He's talked to enough Christians. So he asks, is, is this what Christians really believe? And the president of Union Theological Seminary said this. He said, those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. See, the empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. That's what he believes. Sim simply a symbol, a metaphor. That death will not reign. That even the crucifixion, Christ didn't die for sins. It's simply a symbol. It's simply a metaphor for, for sacrificial love. And the resurrection is a symbol of sacrificial love, winning out, having victory. It doesn't sound very confident. It doesn't sound very confident in resurrection. But friends, we can have confidence that it's not simply a metaphor, that it's not simply a symbol, but it is a historical fact. We can have confidence because of the historical record that that, that is exactly what the disciples recounted. We can have confidence because it was Mary and women who discovered the empty tomb. So some of you know this, that that, that was very significant in that day. In our day, it would be no problem for a woman to testify in a court of law, but in that day, it would have been unheard of because women weren't allowed to testify. They weren't allowed to testify in a court of law. And so, 
So for them to be the people who find the empty tomb, well, if you're concocting a story, if you're just making it up, it makes no sense to have women find the tomb empty because they can just be discounted. So if we were making it up, why, why would we have Mary find the empty tomb? Why would we have Peter unsure of what he saw? That's what we see in the other gospel accounts. I, if I was writing this story, I would make myself look really good, but that's not what the disciples do. The only thing that can account for that is that this is how it actually happened. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, actually revealed himself to hundreds of people, many of whom were still alive. So go ask them. That's what he's saying. Go ask them what they saw, and you will hear that he is alive, he is risen. And so, friends, we can have confidence that this is more than a symbol, it's more than a metaphor, that Christ truly is alive. That he has defeated death and hell and the grave. You see, resurrection gives us confidence. But it also gives us comfort. So John left the empty tomb believing. Peter, from the other gospel accounts I already mentioned, left kind of unsure. He's kind of trying to figure this out. But Mary was left weeping. Do we see that? Mary is remaining at the tomb. Peter and John leave, and Mary, in verse 11, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And as she looked, there's still no body, but now there's someone else there. Right? Look at verses 12 and 13. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's still overcome with grief. And we can understand why, right? I mean, Mary had experienced Jesus' grace and his mercy and his kindness. Mary was the one in Luke 8 that we're told was possessed by seven demons. Seven demons. I have no idea what that experience would have been like, but I can guarantee you it would have been horrific and terrible. And Jesus relieved her of that. He freed her of that. He had, he had experienced her, his love and his grace, and now he was gone, so of course she weeps. And it's that weeping that provokes a question, first by the angel in verse 13, and then by Jesus in verse 15. Woman, why are you weeping? Now the answer is obvious. She thinks Jesus is dead. And so it could seem as though Jesus and the angel are being insensitive, but they're not being insensitive. Jesus is inviting her into a place where sadness is dispelled by comfort. And that comfort comes when he speaks her name, Mary. It's beautiful, isn't it? He just simply says her name, Mary. This one who was surrounded by death, she was in the grave still. This one who came early in the morning and so the, the day was shrouded still in darkness. This one who was in the darkness of her sadness, her own grief, when her name is uttered by Christ, it all melts away. And she's filled with comfort. Jesus speaks forth her name and brings forth light and dispels the darkness. It is John chapter 10 personified when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. And Mary had heard his. And his voice changes her sadness to comfort. 
Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not cling to me. So clearly in her joy and celebration, Mary throws herself at Jesus and grasps hold of him. I, I could imagine that this is like in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan is resurrected. You remember the great lion? He's brought back from the dead. And, and Susan and Lucy, they realize that this isn't a ghost, but it really is him. And what do they do? They throw themselves on the lion and they shower him with kisses and they laugh and they run and they dance and they celebrate because their sadness is no more and they have been comforted by the resurrected Savior. That is the comfort that Mary experiences, but it's not just a comfort for Mary that morning. It is for all Christ's people. I mean, look what he says in the rest of verse 17. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Okay, who's he talking about? His disciples, right? His disciples, Peter, who denied him. Thomas, who would doubt him, right? James and John and all the others that, that we don't really talk very often about, right? The, all these disciples who abandoned him. And what does he call them? Did you see it? My brothers. Go to my brothers and tell them I'm about to ascend to my God and your God, to my father and your father. He says this to them. Th these must have been the most comforting words that they had ever heard. Because Jesus doesn't call them betrayers. He doesn't call them deniers. He calls them brothers. Children of God. And friends, if you, like John, look into the empty tomb and believe, that's what Christ calls you. A brother, a sister, a child of the Lord. You see, he is calling us out of the darkness of our sin, out of the darkness of our pain, out of the darkness of our grief, that, that whatever it is that we bring here this morning, I don't, I don't know what sins you are bringing Bear, what, that you are bearing this morning. I don't know what troubles are weighing on your heart this morning. But if you come believing that Christ has paid for those sins in the cross, if you come believing that he rose again triumphantly, then, then those sins are forgiven. Those burdens are replaced with comfort because he calls you brother and sister. He calls you child of God. But it doesn't even end there. As sweet as that is, the comfort of the resurrection is, it doesn't end there. It continues. You see, resurrection also gives us a commission. Look again at verse 17. Jesus said to Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Now there's been a lot of uh, ink spilled over that little phrase, do not cling to me. And what that means, you see, some people think that what Jesus is doing is saying that in his resurrected state, he's so holy and pure and perfect that for Mary to touch him and to grasp hold of him like she has will make him unclean. But we, we, we shouldn't think that. that. That's not true. That's not right. It's not a good interpretation. 
No, because just a little while later, Thomas is actually going to put his hands in his wounds and in his side. And so Jesus clearly has no problem with people touching him in his resurrected state. No, what, what we should understand this is, is, is almost like a, uh, when a parent goes away on a trip and a child comes and grasps hold of their leg, right? And comes and holds on to them and, and says, Daddy, don't go, don't go, stay just a little while longer. Or mommy, mommy, please don't go. Will you stay with us, right? And we're having to walk over to the door and like peel them away, right? And, and what do we say to them? We say, well, don't worry, we'll be back soon, right? I'm not, I'm only going away for a time, but I'll be back. I'll see you again. It's something of that that's going on here. You see, Mary is taking hold of Jesus because she's afraid that she, she's going to lose him again. She thought she lost him already in the crucifixion, but now by grasping hold, she's, she's wanting to hold on to him a little bit longer. But what does Jesus say? He says, I haven't ascended yet, right? Basically, he's saying, don't worry about it. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here with you. I'm, I'm going to leave. I will ascend to my father, but not yet. Mary, you don't have to cling to me. He says to her instead, I, I need you to go and tell my disciples what you have seen. He says, Mary, do not cling to me. Instead, I have a job for you to do. He gives her a commission to go and to declare that she has seen the Lord, that Jesus is raised from the dead, that the tomb is empty. He commissions her to go and proclaim to the disciples that Christ is risen. But it's not just a commission to Mary, it's to all the disciples. Because later in chapter 20, a little bit after our passage, Jesus appears to the disciples in this locked room and he says to them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus is saying that just as the father sent me into this world to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, I am now sending you into the world to declare that the kingdom has come, that resurrection has occurred. And it's not just for them, but it's also for us. In Matthew 28, Jesus says to all his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. You see, Christ gives a commission to Mary and to his disciples and he gives it to us that we would go into the world, we would leave this place declaring resurrection. We would go proclaiming and declaring that everything sad is coming untrue. You know that after Sam asked that question, Gandalf, is everything sad coming untrue? He followed it with another question. He said, what's happened to the world, Gandalf? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf says to him, a great shadow has departed. And friends, that's exactly what Christ's resurrection has done. The shadow of death, the shadow of sin, the shadow of a broken world, it is being dispelled by resurrection life. It has been dispelled and Christ's resurrection now gives us confidence and comfort and commission. People of God, Christ is resurrected. He lives. Hallelujah. Father, we do thank you that Christ did not remain in the grave, that it cannot overcome him, 
but that instead you, Lord Jesus, rose triumphantly. You rose triumphantly with a new body, a body that could be touched, a body that could be seen, a body that ate and walked, a new, glorious, resurrected body. And so, Christ, because you live, we know that we live too. And so we ask that you would help us to live as resurrected people today and tomorrow and all of our days so that every aspect of our life would be given over to you, our risen King, in whose name we pray and God's people said, Amen.